0: Our New Testament reading is Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 28. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, "You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God." And Jesus answered him, "Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, on the third day be raised." Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord.
1: and hope. It's good to be with you this morning as we continue our series in the Gospel of of Matthew. And, And certainly this is a passage that brings much focus, much emphasis upon the church. And as the church, we are that community called, created, crafted by the Word of God. So before we turn to the Word of God, let us turn before the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for your scripture. Thank you that you have given it to your church. Thank you, Lord, that you have created your church by way of it. I pray, Lord, that the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions for this passage and to the gospel that you have proclaimed, that you have performed in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask these things and we thank you for these things, Lord. In Christ's name, Amen. Well, this passage, it begins with two questions. We read, Jesus asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, Others say Elijah, And others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? And these are two very different questions. The first one is is general. Who do people say that I am? What are they saying about me? Who do they think that I am? And there are a number of answers that are given here, none of which are right. Jesus is not John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or a mere prophet. And recognize that the answer is given here by the people They show some knowledge of the Old Testament. Elijah and Jeremiah are Old Testament prophets, so these are answers from people who likely identified with the people of God. All the same, many of our modern answers are not much better. Every two years, I don't know if you've seen this, but Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway, they conduct a series of surveys about theological questions try to find out what American adults in general and professing Christians believe. And the results from 2022 show that when self-professing Christians were asked to respond to the statement, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God, we find that 43% agreed with this statement. 43% of persons who self-identified with the name of Christ rejected an essential element of the Christian doctrine of Christ, that he possesses both the divine and a human nature, that he is both fully God and fully human. Again, these are self-professing Christians, not those who identify as non-Christians. If Jesus was only a great teacher, it would have been enough to identify him with John or Elijah or Jeremiah or a mere prophet. However, this will not do. But even more than that, others, other people's answers will not do. It's not enough just to disagree. It's not enough simply to analyze the answers of others Christianity is not just a social phenomenon to be studied from the outside. If it were, then yes, we could stop it. What do people say about Jesus? But no, this is about Christ himself, the God-man, coming directly to us and addressing us personally with his identity and mission. And so Jesus asks directly to the disciples the much more important question, but who do you, say that I am." The disciples must take a stand, and we must take a stand. If Jesus truly is the Divine Son, the Logos, the Word through whom all that was made was made, if that one has become human to seek us out and to save us and to bring us back to God, we cannot remain indifferent about this question. Either Jesus truly is God become human, or He is of no concern at all. The one thing He can simply not be is of interest or of concern. Jesus is either everything or nothing. And if he is in fact everything, and if we never took the time to search him out, to investigate his claims, to truly struggle with the question of who do you say that I am, we are avoiding the most important issue and question that life sets before us. As C.S. Lewis warns, You must make your choice. You can shut Jesus up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. This is Lewis's classic Lord, Liar, or Lunatic argument. Jesus is either one of these three and you have to make your choice. Either he is God or the claims that he makes about himself, claims about being God, are evidence of the greatest maniacal arrogance or the deepest self-aggrandizing madness. But either he is the very greatest good or he is not good at all. There's no in between here. And despite what 43 percent of self-professing american christians say the one thing that he cannot be is a great teacher who is not god the one thing that he cannot be is merely elijah or john or jeremiah or just one of the prophets if you're suffering from a horrible disease and some doctor claims to have the one treatment that can cure your illness The one reaction you will not give to this claim is indifference or apathy. Either this is wonderful news, the wonderful news that you've been waiting for, or it's a cruel trick. The one thing it cannot be is interesting. And to be sure, you will search it out. Well, this is the position that Christ puts us in. It's at least intellectually consistent to call Jesus a lunatic or a liar. But, of course, his true title is Lord. And this brings us to Peter's confession. Jesus poses the same question to his disciples that he poses to each and every one of us. But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter answers rightly. Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of David. He's the greater king prefigured and promised to David. He's the greater prophet prefigured and promised by Moses. He's the greater priest prefigured and promised in Melchizedek. But he's not merely the greatest human king or greatest human prophet or greatest human priest. Again, Jesus is not merely Elijah or John or Jeremiah. No, He's not merely human. He is the Son of the living God. He is God the Son. He Himself is the one true living God. He is God become human. And this is very important because it will help us rightly navigate what comes next. So bear with me and we'll return in just a moment to Christ as both divine and human. But first... Look at what Jesus goes on to tell Peter. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. We have two very important things in this text that we cannot separate. Peter and his confession. It's not Peter alone on which the church is built, nor is it Peter's confession alone. No, it is Peter confessing Christ. And it's not uncommon for readers to try to separate this, but just as Jesus does, we have to keep these two things together both Peter and his confession. In Scripture itself, it presents us with other reasons why it cannot merely be Peter alone. Peter makes mistakes, even grave theological mistakes. As we will see in the very next scene, Peter will be strongly rebuked by Christ for completely misunderstanding the shape of Christ's mission. Or to cite another example, in the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians, we find that Paul had to rebuke Peter to his face because Peter moved away from the Gentiles that he was eating with when other Hebrew persons came who might have looked down on this table fellowship. And so Paul told Peter in no uncertain terms that he was acting contrary to the truth of the gospel. If the church is founded merely upon Peter, we would not see Peter's actions and words run contrary to the message of the gospel as we see in these instances. However, we must also not make the other mistake, citing only Peter's confession as the rock upon which the church is built. The Greek of this passage will not allow this. Jesus says here, You are Petros, and upon this Petra I will build my church. You are named Rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. Jesus is clearly drawing special emphasis to Peter here. And so, the rock on which the church is built is neither Peter alone or the confession of Christ alone, but Peter as he confesses Christ. And this has important implications for us. If the rock was Peter alone, then the emphasis would be on the church alone. We see this in traditions that believe that there is no salvation outside of that particular tradition. No salvation outside of that particular church. What has happened is they have replaced the primacy of Christ with the primacy of a particular group of people. The key question of Christianity then becomes, what is the right church? What is the right tradition? The primary question has not become, who do you say that I am? But who do you say that Peter is? Functionally speaking here, the church has become the source of God's salvation over and above the Christ that the church is called to confess. In this way, the church of Christ can come to displace Christ. Mere humans have taken on the role of what Christ alone can do. And perhaps the best response here would be to rebuke such a person, such a position, as Paul does to Peter for practicing a kind of separation from his fellow Christians that is not in line with the truth of the gospel. However, if the rock was Peter's confession alone, the church itself would be bypassed. The focus would be merely upon the confession removed from its personal context. But look at the New Testament. What we see here are Christians gathered together in the church. The Christian life is the life in the church. Yes, there are certainly situations people might find themselves in, circumstances in in heavily persecuted areas, for instance, where they're not able to participate in the life of the church. However, generally speaking, there is no salvation outside of participation in the church. Let me say that again. Generally speaking, there is no salvation outside of participation in the church. In the New Testament, we do not see lone confessors isolated from participation in the church. Yes, the thief on the cross who believed in Jesus and joined him in paradise, he likely never participated in the life of the people of God. However, An extreme example cannot set the agenda for the common Christian life. What is merely possible cannot establish what is commonly proper. A confession alone with no desire to participate in the life of the church is not a true confession. You cannot confess Christ and forsake his bride. So then, How do we hold these two things together? How do we keep the primacy of Christ while still upholding the necessity of the church? Well, this brings us back to Peter's actual confession. Jesus, you are the son of David and the son of God. Again, you are both fully human and fully divine. And this unique identity, is what enables Christ to carry out his mission. And one important emphasis of the Reformed tradition, the tradition of which Presbyterianism is a part, is that Christ is the mediator between God and humanity as both God and humanity. Not that other traditions don't affirm this, but that he mediates. Sorry, they affirm that he is both God and human, but that he mediates between God and humanity according to both his divine and human nature. That he mediates not only as a human, that he is the mediator not only by the work of his humanity. We see this in the Reformed emphasis, for instance, in the Heidelberg Catechism. He doesn't mediate simply as a human. The Catechism reads... No mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? One who is a true and righteous human, yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also true God. Why must the mediator also be true God? So the mediator by the power of His divinity, might bear the weight of God's wrath in His humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. The emphasis in the Reformed tradition here is that Christ mediates according to both His human and divine nature as both man and God. It is because Jesus is, as Peter tells us, the Christ, the son of David, and the son of the living God, that he can be our mediator, our savior, our one hope for redemption and reconciliation to God. Again, this is not saying that other Christian traditions don't affirm that God is both divine and human. They do. But that both of these work to mediate between us and God. And we'll see why this is important. Humanity alone was obligated and God alone was able to bear the full weight of sin and earn for us new life. But how does this confession of the divine human mediator relate to Christ's establishment of his church? Well, if Christ is the one and only mediator, since he is the one who is both fully God and fully human, then he alone can dispense his grace. He alone can dispense his salvation. He alone can stand between a holy God and a fallen humanity. Peter and all that follow him in the church, being merely human and not God, they could never do this. If Christ mediated only as a human, only according to his human nature, then the church, being human, would be able to, in some degree or another, fill in for Christ as mediator. But again, Christ mediates between God and humanity according to both His his divinity and His humanity. The church is not the mediator. No, the church is always and only those who have received the mediation of Christ. And for this reason, no church or tradition can replace the primacy of Christ Himself. No church or tradition can serve as the mediator of God's salvation because the church, unlike Christ, is not divine. Therefore, Christ cannot build his church on Peter alone. However, it is through the church that Christ works his mediation. It is through all the ways that Peter and all of those who follow him in the church, all the ways that they confess Christ, that Christ himself works his salvation. Again, the church is built upon Peter confessing who Jesus is. Peter confesses Jesus is both the Christ, the son of David, and the son of God. Peter understands and proclaims Jesus according to the scriptures. These are titles and categories that scripture itself have given Peter. In confessing Christ here, Peter is essentially proclaiming scripture, which of course is proclaiming Christ. The church is where Christ, the sole mediator, is proclaimed and where Christ, the sole mediator, is ministered. Theologian Herman Bovink is, is helpful here. He points out that each part of the church's ministry, its ministry of Christ, is actually an administration of scripture, the scripture that proclaims Christ, the scripture that Peter proclaimed in his confession. It's the Scripture that is proclaimed in the worship service as we read and respond and uh, sing and preach the promise of Christ. It's the same promise that we taste and eat and drink in the Lord's Supper. And likewise, in church discipline and discipleship, we are conformed to the character of Christ as we conform our lives to the proclamation of Scripture. In each of these ways we share Peter's confession of Christ. And Christ, the sole mediator between God and humanity, the one and only Savior, is ministered to us. This is Christ's work of mediation and salvation. But Christ has chosen the church as his instrument of ministering his work to the world as the church ministers the scriptures that proclaim Christ. If we are to find the salvation and grace and mediation and hope of Christ, we must look to his chosen servant, his select instrument, his beloved bride, the church. The church is where Christ's salvation is. And to the extent that we hold back from participation in the church, in its life, in its fellowship, in its means of grace, in its sacraments, To that extent, we starve ourselves of Christ. And so ask yourself, are you holding back? Are you holding back from a full commitment and membership because you want to hold it all at arm's length? Are you not prioritizing church attendance in the same way that you prioritize work or schedule or extracurriculars? Would you be more worried about your children missing a week of school than a month of church? Are you developing close friendships with your fellow Christians here in this room? And assuming health conditions are not at play, do you find yourself simply resorting to the ease of the live stream rather than participating in corporate worship right here together? Christ church is where you will find Christ. You cannot be a lone confessor. We cannot confess Christ, yet curse His bride. And when the church faithfully confesses Christ, then Christ is at work doing what Christ alone can do. And what does Christ do through the church? Christ tells Peter, The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This language of the keys, it also directs us to the inability of any mere human to handle the keys on their own. If you remember, during our Advent series on Isaiah, we looked at Isaiah 22. And in that chapter, we read, And that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. God places on Eliakim's shoulder the key of the house of David, which symbolizes all of the authority and rule of the Davidic kings who sat upon the throne of David. While the, king, while the kingdom is in a state of catastrophe, Eliakim is compared here to a peg in a secure place. Eliakim will help Judah stay firm. But something happens. Isaiah continues about Eliakim. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way. And it will be cut down, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. And we're left wondering what happened. Wasn't Eliakim a good leader of his people? Yes, the text tells us so. Again, he's a firm peg, a firm peg in a secure place. But the problem is that the people have mistaken Eliakim for their ultimate leader. They're putting on him a, sh- uh, a weight that no human can bear. As one commentator writes of Eliakim, the reliable office holder attracts to himself the respect and confidence of the people. But should this become a reliance upon a human person replacing the reliance upon the Lord, the end is calamity. Similarly, Peter merely as Peter. Peter, without the confession of Christ, he cannot bear the weight of the keys of the kingdom. But thankfully, this is not the last time that we encounter the keys in Scripture. In Revelation 3, Christ calls himself the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. And these keys are the keys of life and death. That is, we cannot understand the mention of the keys in Revelation 3 without understanding what Christ says about himself in Revelation 1. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. We see that these keys are directly related to Christ dying and Christ living again. And Christ himself makes this clear to Peter. After Christ goes on to tell his disciples that he will suffer and be killed and raised on the third day, Peter rebukes him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus replies in the most severe of terms, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Peter has no notion of a suffering Messiah. But Christ tells Peter that to proclaim any other kind of Messiah is a hindrance to his mission. In fact, it is satanic. And so while Peter rightly identified Jesus as the Christ, Peter is still learning all that this title means. And so this suffering Messiah must be the Messiah that we ourselves confess. If you ask a pastor or church leader... Was it absolutely necessary that Christ die and be raised again in order to reconcile us to God? And if they answer with a no or with a less than full affirmation, then according to Christ, the only proper response is, get behind me, Satan. Again, the church is the church to the extent that it, following Peter, confesses the Christ of Scripture. However, if that is not the Christ that is preached, then as Jesus tells Peter, they are not setting their mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. For confessing the true Christ is the very means by which the confessing Peter and the confessing church uses the keys of Christ that Christ gives to them. It is through this confession that the confessing church binds and looses. Again, Christ is the sole mediator between God and a fallen humanity. And he mediates by way of the church's confession, this public proclamation of who he is and what he has done. And so, we have to ask, why was Christ killed? Well, after living the perfect life of love to both God and neighbor, Christ suffered the punishment and consequence of sin that we merited. He suffered death upon the cross, his body was laid in a tomb, and his soul descended to the place of the dead, to Sheol. That Christ did not stay dead. Again, as Christ tells us, he will and was raised on the third day. He rose never to die again. He rose to break the bonds of death over humanity. He rose so that his confessing church might one day be resurrected, free from sin and corruption and death and all of the evil that lurks within our own hearts and in the world at large. And so how is it that this confession is the set of keys that bind and loose? Well, Because it is by this confession, this proclamation of the Messiah who suffers and is raised, that we fallen humans are delivered from the kingdom of death. It is by this proclamation that the gates of hell are unlocked and broken down. It is by this proclamation that those who are bound fast to the path of eternal death are awoken and made alive as they trust in Christ. By placing our faith in this confession of Christ, we become part of the church. We become stones built upon the rock of the confessing Peter by faith in Christ, the suffering and resurrected Messiah. Christ takes our guilt before God, having borne our punishment upon the cross, and he secures for us a life of perfect flourishing flourishing with God and neighbor in the resurrection. And so the charge to the church is to confess and to proclaim Christ. Are we confessing Christ in word? Are we confessing Christ in deed? If not, then we are letting these keys that have the very power to liberate from death simply dangle from our belt like a self-satisfied and sleeping jailer. Without this confession, we are not the church. And so the Gentiles that Peter moved away from They were not suddenly removed from the kingdom of God when Peter rejected them by leaving the table. No, it is not Peter alone that binds and looses. It is Peter as he confesses Christ. And in this instance, Peter has ceased to confess Christ, and he ceased to use the keys of the kingdom. The kings were too much for the merely human Eliakim to handle on his own. They're too much for the merely human Peter to handle on his own, but not so Christ, who is not merely human, but also divine. And we handle these keys rightly to the extent that we minister the gospel in both word and deed. Only then are people being rescued from the gates of hell and delivered into the kingdom of Christ. Peter's actions towards his Gentile tablemates were contrary to the gospel, contrary to his confession, yet this confession that the church, church is built upon, this confession should shape the whole of our church's life. Again, we find here not just a confession, but a confession proclaimed and lived out by Peter, by persons, and by all that follow after Peter. And so Christ tells us, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And this is a serious charge. The Christ that we confess, the Christ who died upon the cross, who gave his life for us, who secures for us the great hope of the resurrection, this Christ must shape all that we do. There can be a tendency in the Reformed tradition to level out all Christian lives. Yes, we are saved only by grace. And yes, in this life our every human faculty will ever bear sin's corruption even as we are cleansed by the process of sanctification. But this does not mean that we should not strive, strive diligently for a cross-shaped life. We do not strive for such a life to earn salvation. Christ has already done that in full. No, we do it to bring this full salvation which Christ has already secured into every area of our life. Accordingly, it is fitting that the church is built upon the confessing Peter specifically. Yes, as we have seen, Peter, like all of us, made many mistakes and he will continue to. But Peter goes on to speak and to live this confession with the utmost seriousness. In the book of Acts, we see that Peter preaches and preaches and preaches and preaches Christ. Peter confesses Christ even amidst beatings and imprisonments. He does so without concern to his own reputation, in the eyes of his fellow people, or even the religious leaders. Peter lives among a community of Christians that willingly willingly sells and gives away their most treasured possessions for the sake of the poor in their midst. This is not merely Peter. Peter alone is sunk. No, this is the confessing Peter, the Peter who rests in the gospel and is compelled to live out its message in gratitude to the salvation of Christ. And this is the kind of life that all of us should strive for. This is not to earn our salvation, but to apply salvation fully to our whole selves. And this kind of life, and this is terrifying to say, is the only kind of life where any true happiness can be found in this world. We must lose our life to find it. This is why we all do well to immerse ourselves in the lives of other confessing Peters. Others who have picked up their cross... Because they have set their hearts not upon the things of man, but upon the things of God. Do you have a mentor in the faith that you deeply respect? If not, I encourage you to find one. Do you have a mentee in the faith that you deeply care for? If not, I encourage you to find one. With that, do we know the lives of the saints who came before us? Few things are more powerful than stories and narratives, and I encourage you to nourish your soul with the narratives of such lives, the lives of the saints. There are many examples, but let me close with just one. That of Polycarp, an early Christian martyr of the church. He was Bishop of Smyrna, which is in modern-day Turkey. And Christian tradition tells us that he was a disciple of John the Apostle. Yet, as an aged man, soldiers came to take him away, either to recant his faith or to be killed. And Polycarp knows that the soldiers have come to lead him to his death. But what does Polycarp do when the soldiers arrive? He does not wish them ill. He sees that they are weary and hungry from their journey, their journey to capture him. And so he has food and drink brought to them. He feeds and nourishes the life of those who have been tasked to bring him death. What is more cross-shaped than serving and loving those who mean you harm? This is the whole logic of the cross. Christ comes to save the very ones by whom He was slain. We enacted the ultimate crime. We took the life of Christ's humanity. Yet Christ enacted the ultimate love, giving His life willingly so that we might live. To be certain, Polycarp himself cannot feed these soldiers with his own flesh and blood, as can his Savior but Polycarp, too, bears his, bears his cross, conforming himself to the image of Christ. One imagines Polycarp saying here, Here is food, here is drink, eat it and know that there is a greater meal of bread and wine that I have received from the hands, from the very body and blood of the one whom I sent to death. We have to ask, what might others take from us? What might others need from us that we have not already received in an infinitely deeper way in Christ? The soldiers are amazed by the generosity and fortitude of Polycarp, and many come to regret the task on which they have been sent. There's something compelling, something unexplainable, something beautiful about a cross-shaped life, and how could there not be? We confess that Christ gave His life for us, that He was raised for us, that He secures for us the deepest longing of our heart. If this is our confession in the logic of our life, then certainly the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of Christ. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank You for who You are. We thank You, Lord. You have given us your Son, Jesus Christ, the suffering Messiah who is raised again, who takes our punishment and our guilt and secures for us the greatest of all hope. May we place our faith in Him and may that faith ever grow. In His name we pray. Amen.